It's the lucky number 11, right? Episode 11, make a wish. Make, make a wish? <laughs> you know when it's like 11-11 and you say make a wish? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's episode 11. Today we're going to talk a little bit about money. No, I don't want to start like that. I want to start like... Cha-ching! Mo money, mo problem. Mo money, mo problem, mo money, mo. See, I don't know if I agree with the mo money, mo problems. Eh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't know from experience. <laughs> I've never had money. Says the graduate student. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna talk a little bit about how money can affect the brain and how it kind of shapes our behavior. You know, it's not necessarily super neuroscience related, although we will be talking a little bit about a couple parts of the brain that have to do with how scientists think we encode money and value. It's an interesting topic because it's just, I think it's pretty, pretty generally accepted that money is a fabricated concept. Oh, yeah. We just go with it. But yeah, so I think it's such an interesting thing. And I don't know, Paul, you can talk about this too if you want, but I think it's really cool to to see how humans can fabricate an idea and a concept and it be so efficient in so many ways that it just embeds itself into our own behavior and how we think and how we do things. Well, I don't know the history and I'm not going to pretend like I know the history of money, but (laughs) I I have seen things on Twitter where I've casually (laughs) read and I'm going to reference my vague memory of reading this Twitter thread about two weeks ago that I barely remember. Right, it was saying something about like how like like capitalist desires in ancient Rome basically drove like the the how how present money is as a currency because obviously people often traded with goods, mm-hmm. um, and so there's like value judgments there. Uh, but then. Basically, the Roman Empire printed a whole bunch of coins with Caesar's head on them. And in order to have access to that capital market, you had to have these coins. Um, and so like it, like, it pushed capitalism in a way that was steadily reliant on the governance. And so well, the Roman Empire owned all this land, and you couldn't be part of the empire unless you were trading into money. their capital with the currency that they imprinted yeah something around along those lines interesting interesting yeah but in general we can say that to be part of the society you had to have some worth quote unquote right and so that 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 could be part of where we started to kind of define our worth as a human when it comes to money and our place in society yeah nothing came before the roman empire there were no humans um Well, yeah, to, to go back to what you were saying about trade, I think it's interesting that the that money symbolizes the concept of trade and it kind of creates a common denominator between individuals that that can like rank objects with, you know, different amounts of currency with their value and then we can trade appropriately. I don't know. I always thought of that was really interesting because people sometimes say, why can't we go? Back to the days where we just trade instead of like having to pay money. And I actually listened to a, uh, a podcast uh, today from NPR, The Hidden Brain. 
Do you listen yeah. to Hidden Brain? I don't, but I know what you're talking about. You don't? You I, I, really yeah, I mean, I've heard segments of it. I don't actively it's listen. It's really good. So the one I was listening to today was called Emotional Currency, and it was about money and how it affects the brain, but it really related more to like how money is representative of um, a quantity of human relationships. It was a very different, okay, different direction. Was it like social like aspects of class and like class delineation? Not really. It was just like it was just more like you know if you have money you can provide more for your your, your significant family other and, and family emotional yeah. welfare for you. Right, and if they have good mental and physical health, then you did well as a human, and then you know it, it was different. Okay, it was really different. okay. Uh, the host and the guest they were talking about how this trading concept could actually never really work in the modern society or in really most societies because what you need for that kind of system to work, I forget what they actually called it, but I think it was called double coincidence. And basically what they were saying was if Paul, you had, you know, pine cones (laughs) and I really needed pine cones and I have, you know, meat (laughs) <laughs> Those are not really equal at all. <laughs> okay, so you have deer meat, and I have fish meat. And so, if you need fish meat, I need the fish. If meat. you want this fish deer meat, meat's just not going to. And do. I want deer meat, but the you know we don't have that, but the other does. Then we have to make that mutual agreement in that point in time, and it's a double coincidence that we just happen to cross each other at that point in time where our needs also intersect. Anyway. That was like an interesting way for me to think of to kind of like put that idea to rest because I think growing up I was always like why can't we just trade stuff why can't we just you know as an adult I think about that stuff and I understand how it wouldn't be realistic but I guess like the the kid in me is like if we had the system all from the beginning we could do it but I don't think that's necessarily true such as like electricity provided to your house or something yeah I mean stuff like that like I think most people would agree that that's like something that like a government institution serves to exist or exists to serve yeah, that's true. to the public is like providing the utility of uh, of things like electricity or clean water, and we right. we put capital into that investment and they they give it back to us, and right. that's what taxes are. <laughs> if you pay them, <laughs> <laughs> just just kidding. <laughs> if you're middle class or lower class, pay your taxes. Oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, I'm not a bitter grad student. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, happy election, by the way. <laughs> the election's over, and I think a lot of people are having a range of emotions. Yeah. <laughs> I think that. <laughs> I think that's a pretty good blanket that's statement. That's as general as I can get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we try to keep this podcast free of any <laughs> political mm-hmm. anything. So visit my personal <laughs> Twitter or accounts if you want to know my 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 political leanings. But I'll go. I'll refr- refrain from getting into it. Here. But no, you you said something that made me think of something else that I read that was interesting about like equal equal concepts of what value is, and so like. There, there's more to it than just assigning a currency value to something. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I think the clearest way to illustrate that is that like, if, if what we cared for was like the, the currency value of something, then like, say I have a house that's $300,000 or I have 
like, I don't know, for example, like 200,000 peaches. <laughs> like <laughs> they might have Sounds the like same math problem. <laughs> they might have the same value in currency, but like the utility and function just doesn't necessarily <laughs> you equate. Just don't need that many peaches. <laughs> <laughs> Is what, all I'm saying. what am I gonna do with all those peaches? <laughs> <laughs> Peach farm. Anyway, <laughs> PSS. <laughs> <laughs> basically but yeah it's, it's i don't know it's a weird thing like yeah why, value why, is weird yeah like why doesn't it equate to function i mean i think that that's a, that's a really good a really good uh subject to think about because we like value is so kind of what i was saying before like money what i was saying was that money the idea of money is embedded in our our behavior as a human but maybe what it is is value because money is just a representation of value and value is binary in some aspects where it could just be, you know, something is better and something is worse. Mm -hmm. So what's the value of this item first, this item. And I think that that's actually probably a more appropriate or more reasonable uh, function for the brain to, to be able to calculate. Instead of like having like monetary values like five hundred dollars versus eleven hundred dollars, it's like a functional value. What do you mean? Oh, sorry, I like slightly zoned out while you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> what you said something was more like better. I was saying that like value in general, like m money symbolizes mm -hmm. value, mm -hmm. and so maybe it's not money or monetary amount that we our brain calculates but it is like what you were saying is value maybe one thing is better than the other yeah you know just like on a very basal level like what what are your options and which one is better mm -hmm. yeah i feel like there's a there's like value value in and of itself is a very vague term that captures a lot very subjective too i think yeah. Right. Because sometimes people can value things in terms of dollars, and sometimes people can value things in terms of moments. Others can value things in terms of mm. acts. You're getting very service. abstract. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting what? Very abstract. I was yeah. keeping it within the realm of, or my thought was like within the realm of like economics. Like well, me too, some though. Some things have immediate value, while other things have like long term interest. Mm. Maybe to bring it back to economics, you could compare it to like, like investments first payments or something yeah yeah anyway sorry i think i cut you off but but like even within economics i feel like the term value i mean i don't know economics i'm outside the field like <laughs> tear me to shreds here if i'm wrong and i probably am um but like you mean like a monetary value though or just the term va value which more than likely applies to like monetary like it, it's not clear to me how that is is referenced throughout economics like mm. like i feel like there are so many different like very different types of, of value values interesting yeah. or things that can be or like have some sort of value and that that could it, those values could have like a temporal component such as like long-term investments versus right right things that you want in the immediate well i see, so i guess we're talking about similar things but I'm just generalizing what you're saying by saying something is better or worse. And so in any one of those compartments where value might be 
compared from two objects or services or something. It's like, and that's where I think the subjective thing comes in. It's like, what do you need right now? What does your family need? What's better or worse for your situation? Right? Like, do you need an iPhone or do you need dinner on the table for the next like three weeks? That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Three weeks of peaches. Three weeks of peaches, (laughs) baby. (laughs) Eat them up. Eat them up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, so I thought something too we could talk about was the, you know, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a dopamine scientist by no means whatsoever, but dopamine is very involved in the way we perceive reward. And in fact, I think it's less about how we perceive the reward after and more about reward anticipation. For dopamine specifically? Yeah. Like if you, if you see your stocks going up over time, it's probably, I feel like maybe dopamine has something to do with the motivation to keep going with that. If you see like a positive like relationship. Hmm? Like trending? Yeah, like a positively trending relationship between your stocks and your, you know, whatever, your choice and the stocks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you would be like, yeah, maybe this would be a good idea to keep going. But if you saw it going down, you'd be less inclined to do so. I don't know if that has anything to yeah. do with it. Though. I mean, I think on the surface... That, that I think that's a good example, but for something as like complex as stocks, where there's like markets that are, however good or bad they are at predicting, they're trying to predict how the stocks are going to fluctuate. Right. Um, and so like we have heuristics to like, like models of what we might predict to actually happen. We can base our choices off of those predictions. Right. Right. Which is maybe a little bit different. Well, for sure, for sure. But we have models, but the things that are produced by our own brain are not these models. Our brain doesn't produce these models. Unless our brain is you know, we computationally using mm-hmm. similar heuristics and algorithms to make our decisions. True, 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 true. But the chance that we just happen to find this the exact model that our brain uses, right, is kind of low. Low, but I mean... But helpful. This is sort of a, a tautology, but like, what if all the systems that we have developed as a human species in the world are just based on exactly what we compute in our brains, yeah. because that's all we can functionally ever know. Right. So what about it? Well, I guess like in predicting the stock markets, maybe they fluctuate in ways that mm. the heuristics from how stocks fluctuate, we, we can like interpret that. Uh Internally. internally yeah no no totally totally but i don't know but then again we suck at predicting stocks so. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what i keep going back to in my head i'm like well you know if we could predict them we would but we can't no but true 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 yeah. um i don't i i'm just like ranting not ranting. no same I, I'm, we're just, both <laughs> I, yeah no this is good this is good that, that was a cool that was a cool rant honestly um going back to dopamine there are two main dopaminergic pathways that are in the brain or at least two major pathways that are that are in the brain that contribute to our behavior and one of them is the mesolimbic pathway the mesolimbic dopaminergic pathway and that just means i think i don't really know i should have looked it up but meso i think just means middle yep <laughs> like right okay like the middle of the brain that's where the 
the main dopamine centers, the VTA, the ventral tegmental area, the ventral tegmental area, and that is right in the center of the brain, basically. Uh, so I think that's where the word meso comes from. Mesolimbic just means that the VTA projects to the limbic areas of the brain, which are a bunch of different regions. But those have a lot to do with emotions and how we process emotions. And then the other pathway is the mesocortical dopamine pathway. And that is just the VTA, the ventral tegmental area. <laughs> I can't speak today. The ventral tegmental area projecting to the cortex of the brain, which is pretty much the cortex throughout the whole brain from prefrontal to like posterior regions of the brain, like occipital lobes. But depending on what species you are. Pro yeah, probably. Absolutely. Depending <laughs> on what species, species you are. But regardless, the, you know, there are two pathways. One occurs directly to the emotions and one occurs directly to the higher order regions that you've heard Paul talk about in the past, such as the prefrontal cortex. And so that contributes to like our, our ability to make decisions and thought to stuff hmm? it's thought to contribute to it's yeah right it's thought to yeah or action and ambition absolutely we don't actually know anything we have theories and models and we have correlations of activity to different sorts of behaviors and whatnot <laughs> the brain is the most complex system known to man so i thought it would be a cool thing to talk about money on brainy days because i mean unless you're you know a celebrity or rich in general <laughs> money is a problem for a lot of us or at least we think of it as a problem you know having x amount could be better or worse depending on who you are but i think we all kind of i don't know strive for the security of like financial security yeah and i think that that definitely gets to a lot of people, especially graduate students, for instance, who get paid not that much. Mm -hmm. um, work very unconventional hours. Yeah. Um, when I say that, though, I want people to know, people who out there who aren't graduate students in a hard science, yeah, we get paid. And so that's that sounds cool. But what that means is our tuition is paid and we get a, a livable stipend to work with. And that stipend is not always livable. Mm -hmm. So we get paid, but it's very, it's very low. And I think that that's definitely a, a huge part of the grad student culture. And at least being, you know, it's not your rite of passage necessarily, but it's more just like a lot of people the way it think is. It is. Yeah. Well, what to be, yeah, to be a paid of, shit. And to like years in the system. <laughs> it's so true change. <laughs> no you're so right honestly I've actually had seniors in the system tell me like that's just part of grad school being broke <laughs> yeah you're gonna be broke we all so did hard. <laughs> back yeah. when the cost of living was a marginal fraction a dollar a month pay than what it is now. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly didn't really even think of that as a whole topic to talk about for the episode until now but yeah. graduate students I mean we, we experience ridiculous amounts of financial stress yeah you know depending on your program and stuff, you may get benefits, you may not. Yeah, it, it it's so variable between different programs. And so... So yeah, if you're a PhD student listening in on us, it's all right if you get really sad about your money and you cry about it <laughs> every night before bed. Yeah, it's in, it's not, in some places it's insane. Like Yeah. Even when I tell people I'm a grad student, it's like they... 
automatically assume that I'm, <laughs> I'm really broke. <laughs> Which is like, you know, not totally false, but it kind of makes me feel like shit. I don't know. I just feel like money is fake. And it's really interesting that we revolve our entire society around it. However, I see the functionality and the utility in revolving a society around a concept such as money. Yeah, I mean, at the at the like the the large economic scale, like if it weren't for currency, I don't see how it would be very functionally possible to be able to for like Trading. a group of people to provide utilities like mm-hmm. electricity and water. Right, right, right. And so yeah, I, the concept of money makes those things more attainable. Agreed. Within, uh, yeah, and I think companies are just a personification of money because it's like companies are built to provide a service that one person couldn't do alone, such as like an elect like an electrical service, mm-hmm. getting electricity to your house to to a whole neighborhood of houses. You know, one man or woman isn't going to be able to go and hook up all the electricity to these houses, even if they had all the you know resources to do so. But a company, mm-hmm. and that just I feel like money equates to this is a whole other conversation. But in I don't know, simple way, money relates to power. Oh yeah, I'm... you know, and uh, but but then I I take a minute to sit back and think, why is it such a big stressor? You know, if I think back to pretty much any point in my life, yeah, I could tell you if I was well off or not well off at the time, but most of the time, I was not long-term affected by my short-term financial profile. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I stress out, and I think a lot of people stress out so much about having enough money right now or next week or next month. And of course that depends on what your situation is, but you know, at least for me, even when it comes to credit, I utilize credit and I've talked to friends who are like, Oh my gosh, you know, I'd rather not eat than have credit debt. God, like they would literally rather not put a charge on a card than to like put a charge on a card and eat. And that was like an interesting thing to me because I was like, that's when I started to think like money is fake. I would tell them, I'd be like, guys, money is like barely even real. Just like charge the card and pay it later. Yeah, that's also, I, that's something that I don't fully understand. That that particular example is something I don't fully understand because that that just sounds like bad financial habits. That's kind of what I thought because it was. Because like if you have your checking account and your credit account at the most like simplest of ways, then like, you, you charge your credit card and pay it off you pay. i mean i guess unless Ideally, unless yeah. the thing is that you're like borrowed loans and like you're already in too deep of debt like right right how much more do you want to rack up on your credit no so these people i'm actually talking about are super clean of any debt and they just didn't understand how credit worked so yeah because it sounds yeah. like they're just forfeiting any chance to build even the slightest amount of credit right they actually yeah it's a couple they're both like 24 25 now and they neither of them have a credit card how are they gonna buy a house they're not they just (laughs) don't know it yet (laughs) i guess yeah i guess they'll learn um hopefully but yeah i I guess they'll learn at some point so kind of switching gears really quickly but i found this really interesting paper which i'm only going to talk very very briefly about 
I don't have too much information about it on my notes, but it's called Poverty Impedes Cognitive Function. So basically, in a nutshell, what it was saying was that these scientists tested farmers right before their harvest season, where they were really kind of struggling to make a dollar. They, they gave them these neuropsychological batteries to test their cognitive ability at the time. And what they found was that giving the same people the same tests both before the harvest and after the harvest of their farm, such as if you have squash on your farm, in fall is when you harvest the squash. So in the spring, the squash farmers would be given this IQ test. And then later, after they made a bunch of money, they would also be given another IQ test. And so it shows that it was very consistent that when farmers hadn't made any money yet, they consistently scored about 9 to 10 points lower on their IQ than when they had made a, a bunch of money from their harvest season, which I thought was really interesting. And then another one that I found was really interesting. It showed that, again, these are these are very, very general details that I'm giving everybody because I also did a very cursory search when it, when it came to these papers, but one of them was that people who were less financially stable, they apparently exhibit higher emotional intelligence than do people who are more financially affluent. How do you quantify emotional intelligence? So the way they quantified it was, in a nutshell, they showed pictures to individuals of other people's faces, and they asked them to determine the emotion that this person was expressing. And so I guess each of these pictures had a designated emotion, and that was probably like highly agreed upon or something by the group. And uh, it showed that the people with less financial st stability were better able to process subtle negative facial expressions could as it, opposed to the more affluent people. Could it have been that they used more like nuanced terms to describe the emotion and then like based on the adjectives used, they could like be assigned some like rank of like complexity or that uh you know i'm not sure exactly but if that were the case it would be even more interesting because then the poor people would be expected to not have a higher vocabulary okay Voca yeah yeah you know so it would be or to have a more expanded vocabulary so I, I i could look into that a little bit more and see see what it is but yeah i'm I not have, sure i have no idea how things like that are measured also speaking of money <laughs> and now i'm smiling so speaking of money and happiness and money making you happy that tv i have to have oh you know oh my god Paul. yes let's bring i forgot to bring it up last <laughs> I, episode i've been gone for so long i've been keeping tabs of how i feel about that tv every week so i'll be honest it's been a 10 it's still a Listen, 10 uh -uh. it's been a 10 <laughs> every week it's been the total consistent great 10 until last week <laughs> All of a sudden, this fucking TV. <laughs> you just wanted to fucking punch the Just started to just break in every way possible. I don't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> it's the first episode I might have to beep out my words in, but like. That's so funny. <laughs> it, it's like, it's just, I can't even explain it though, but in a nutshell, every time I click a button, it's like one second delayed. So you click a button and then click the next button because you thought your button didn't click yet. And then you click the other button and then it's like, oh, I went to go left and then. It didn't go left, so I clicked left again, and then I, mm. and then I went right because I 
the first one went left in anyway. See, I thought you were making a joke about the election stuff being aired on TV. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. That too. <laughs> then again, I... You got tired of the news now. I had to... Hopefully. Do you see how crazy he got? Because he couldn't, like, believe that it was over. I knew that was going to happen. How crazy he's still going? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, Oh, man. But I do think it's a really interesting thing to think about how we do get in our own heads about making money and how much money we've made and valuing ourselves based on how much money we've made and it's a totally fabricated concept it's just a concept that has been created by humans for humans and i'm not saying that it's a bad concept it's obviously not because it's survived for so many years and it's been so effective in activities like trade between individuals but our lives do revolve around it unfortunately on some level even if we don't think it does at some level we do have to acknowledge that money does affect the the quality of our life and yeah so if if we start talking about how the brain is encoding value and how we use that information to make choices um this gets into sort of a long a long discussion of or it it could get into a long discussion of the history of how people have traditionally thought that that's a thing um, because va- value and like judgment val- judgment calls based on values seem to be very uh, very entrenched in how we function. Like we weigh two options against each other on some metric, some some dimension where one will ultimately have more value to us than the other. So we use that as our deciding factor to choose. And so traditionally, it's always just been thought that like if that's if that's like systematically how we make our choices, then surely in the brain, there's some area of the brain or neurons in the brain that are directly encoding some sort of uh, like some, some representation of value that we can use to make our judgments. Um, And so a lot of effort has gone into like building tasks with animals and with humans and measuring brain activity to try to find some correlate of, of value representation. And so uh, we can we can think of like comparing things on like the same scale as like, I think the term uh, that is often used in maybe in economics too, I'm, I'm pretty sure, is called common currency, which the idea there is that everything, um, every objective item or choice or something is like all within, all, all placed with on top of the same axis which we can like assign a value to and so everything is objectively better or worse than something else um but that seems sort of like a very a very basic way to categorize it and how could you possibly encode something like that in the brain if all you have is neurons firing action potentials Uh, but people nonetheless have gone and done studies on this trying to find a correlate uh, value assessments and so there, there have been, there's been correlative evidence that suggests like types of value judgment. Um, and so uh, you can ask participants, to present them with two objects, object A and object B. Um, and I do want to say that I, I'm pulling a lot of this material from 
uh, a preprint that's discussion on sort of um, the, the, the use of uh, economic values. Uh, the, the preprint is titled The Case Against Economic Values in the Brain, um, which I guess completely suggests what I'm getting at. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a very interesting discussion about uh, somewhat of the, the history or the, the line of thinking uh, with this and where, where maybe we should go in the future. Um, but yeah, so to get back to the example that I, I was giving, which I'm pulling from this paper because they cite it, is that you have object A and object B, and they have objectively different values associated th with them, where we can, we can go ahead and assume object A is better than object B in, in whatever capacity. And so then you present these two objects to the participant, and what they find is increased activity. I think they were specifically looking in orbitofrontal cortex, which is prefrontal cortex, front of your brain, um, higher order areas. And they found that there were higher firing rates overall uh, in, in that area when the subject was presented with object A, uh, and then relatively less firing when the subject was presented with object B. And so from that, you can make sort of uh, a hypothesis that, oh, there, there's value-based encoding right there. Um, object A is uh, more valuable, and so its representation is stronger in that area of the brain. Um, but what's interesting is then if you instead go from objects A and B to objects B and C, where it's the same object B that is worse than object A, but now you have an object C that's worse than object B, what you find is that the representation for object B now looks very similar to the representation for object A before, and object C looks like the representation for object B. And so it still seems that there's like this instantaneous sort of valued uh, representation that's encoded for this new pair of objects that you have. And you might think of that as like an economic value that's being associated. So the idea is there that um, if our brain is encoding values, then the reason for that is you've encoded these values and then you're using that information, the value, the like quantitative value that you've assigned to that to make a decision or make a choice based off of that. But what this data suggests is that if these value associations are sort of encoded at that time, then what you're actually doing is your, your, your brain is encoding a comparison between them. So it's not using values to then make a comparison. You're encoding a comparison, which then the activity or the representation represents a preference for a choice, uh, for example, uh, which is sort of a more ubiquitous and harmonious way of describing whatever is going on between these like, different pairs. Um, and so that, that sort of like begins to break down this like like long long body of work and trying to like chase down representations of value encoding in the brain, uh, which is super interesting. Um, but what this discussion starts to get at is that well, if the brain isn't encoding value representations along a specific dimension or specific axis, what is it actually doing? Um, and so some of the the thoughts that they throw out is like. For example, maybe our brain has inherent, which I, I think I got at this earlier when talking about the stock market, is our brain has these heuristics that it uses or these sort of statistics or models that are 
sort of premised on maybe like the the con like specific connectivity that's within that region of the brain and then it's just using that heuristic to 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 guide whatever choice we're making where we we throw in the the inputs the stimuli um that each object might represent and then the heuristics sort of guide us on whatever like comparison we want to do in that moment um alternatively one thing uh, that they suggest uh, which has actually been sort of uh, a growing thing within the machine learning field um, and sort of born out of reinforcement learning algorithms specifically uh, is this idea of instead of learning or instead of encoding value uh, the the network is learning action policies and so that is sort of this this fancy term of, of suggesting that uh, instead of building a scale on which you can assess and compare everything on, rather when you're continuously presented with a specific type of choice to make on every iteration of that choice, you are looking at, you're taking the information of whatever outcome came and you're with like, you're, you're still holding on to the information of your options that you had before um, and you're associating the outcome with the option you took. And then you can update the network or update uh, the whatever system you're using to make choices uh, in such a way that maybe next time uh, when presented with the same choices, like for example, if the outcome is very good, so you got a high reward, uh, you might tend to make that choice again. And that's built off of learning this action policy where uh, when you're presented with choices A through C, you're just going to continuously pick A, for example, um, because it always leads to the highest reward. Um, interesting. And it is super interesting. And it's, it's very specifically different from encoding values because let's say you have four choices. And this is, again, an example pulled right out of this uh, preprint discussion. Um, let's say you have four examples. Uh, or, or four objects, A, B, C, and D, and each one is associated with uh, like an amount or volume of reward of some capacity. Uh, but let's say A is the smallest, B is slightly more, C is even more, but D is the same. And so learning an action policy, like if you're going to encode value, then the representations for objects C and D should be similar in some capacity. Uh, you would think if if they're all if all four of these objects are being compared against one each, against one another. Uh, but D is the same as C or D is the same as A. D is the same as C. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Very good. Um, and so, but if you're learning action policy, the idea is that you might end up with a policy that, when presented with those four options. You'll, you'll learn that C gives the best reward because maybe you incrementally went A, B, C and you never even explored the option D because C just gave you this highest reward and that was sufficient, so you stayed there. And so the value encoding that that policy gives is it puts not much weight on D. D isn't very highly valued, even though it does technically give the same reward as C. Your policy might also is like That's explore D cool. anyways, and then maybe it'll weight D a higher value because it just ends up never choosing C, even though there's the same reward. It's kind of like if you meet somebody who is the love of your life, <laughs> and then you love them so much, and then you meet another person who could be the love of your life, but you're already in love. Mm-hmm. 
So it's like that, I guess that's an analogy. Yeah. That's, so, <laughs> that's I don't know. That's just very. I was just thinking about people and comparing like similar people and values of people. Mm-hmm. Like so, if you have a job, so if you have somebody who's already hired for a position C, yeah, and they already do all the things right, and D applies, mm-hmm. you're not going to hire D. You'll never even get to D because C's potentially already doing the based thing. on whatever right. cri- like whatever policy you're using. Interesting, to, right? To but, right. Guide those actions. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And so the idea there is that. It's it's maybe it's probable it's probably unlikely that the brain is encoding specific value. actual value yeah like it, what it's encoding is actually or it's it's learning a policy when it needs mm-hmm. to make a choice and on multiple iterations of having to make that choice uh, it updates mm-hmm. or learns what the most optimal way to approach that specific situation is absolutely and so. Yeah, it's it's a very cool discussion, and it's it's like super recent. So it's like, what makes our brain make the decision? Okay, it's better or worse. Yeah, interesting. And I guess that's like mm-hmm. what design brands do. That's like what their trick is: is to make you be interested. I think that there's like more to it. Yeah, besides the fact that it's just another manufactured item, just like yeah, it's just a lot of other in things. the same configuration as before. Right, like a shirt is a shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The material yeah. could be different, but it's still material. Regardless. But I mean, I, th- I think the obvious thing that they exploit is like the, the social aspect is, mm-hmm. ooh, look at these people. They're wearing it. You like these people. You like these celebrities. Well, that's you where money be. permeates into society. Like, yeah. not just society. It controls us all. Social. <laughs> I mean, yeah. We're all cogs in the machine. <laughs> we are, though. <laughs> <laughs> we can laugh about it. Self-awareness helps. <laughs> but, uh. Um, and so one way that action policies can potentially be learned in the brain, as Jeff mentioned, was perhaps through these dopamine systems, uh, because what it what it kind of takes to uh, to learn a policy like that to, to make an optimal choice um, is some sort of calibration based on the outcome. And so you can think of like what we mentioned, like reward prediction as sort of the the agent behind learning that policy uh and so th- that that's sort of the one of the theories going on with how, how the brain uh learns to make optimal decisions is through this like dopamine system and these reward prediction errors yeah totally that was a really good way to summarize that all actually we're just a bag of chemicals one of those being dopamine and it has a lot to do with how we predict reward Mm-hmm. how we make choices and how we make choices and for some reason money is part of a lot of our choices unfortunately so maybe, it's maybe all of us that's kind of what i was thinking i was actually going to say that like, i just I mean, didn't want to make any like decisions for people like may- maybe there's an obvious example that i can't think of right now because i'm tired yeah. but like trying to think of an example Pretty of much. Like, a decision that i make day to day that isn't somehow tied to money i mean the the micro decisions we make like you know what am i gonna uh, i guess you're right i was gonna say what am i gonna wear <laughs> you bought those clothes it's like just because i have them here doesn't mean i didn't pay for them at one point yeah interesting yeah i guess you know money does it is it is something that we just have to accept as humans is that money is a really really powerful source actually before we close, there's one quote that I wrote down, or, or did I not write it down? 
the, there's a quote that I saw that was by some scientist, and he stated, just like food is motivation to dogs, money is to people. Mm. And I thought that was so interesting. Nah. All right. So that was the money in the brain. It was a little all over the place, but uh, <laughs> I hope. You know what? As of last week, pretty it, much. It was, it's been a long week for a lot of us. Yeah. Um, we're a little loopy. But I'm sure a lot of your rainy days have been made better. Not even brainier. Honestly, <laughs> probably a little bit brainier, week. too. <laughs> also a little bit brainier. But we'll talk to you in about two weeks with our next episode. And in the meantime, <laughs> feel free to visit our Twitter. <laughs> our Twitter is actually kind of starting to pick up. Oh, really? It's not like starting to pick up. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or before we had 15 followers and now we have like 20. But it's a 33% increase. But I noticed it's only when we started to be more active on it. Mm. So once we get yeah, a little bit more a lot, active. a lot of sense. But that's, for real, that's what they always say is engagement. Yeah. I have to give you the new password, by the way, because I changed it. Yeah, again. I know. You should have told me. I I freaked out because I didn't know the password, and then I was like, "Oh yeah, I changed mm-hmm. it." Because of Paul. Um. Yeah. So check us out at Twitter. All right, and we're it's been a long week, and we're wrapping up. But feel free to check us out in the interim before we release our next episode in two weeks at Brainy underscore Days, um, and I guess on our Instagram too, uh, at <laughs> at Brainy dot podcast at Brainy Days dot podcast. <laughs> And yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Bye. Bye. See you next week. You didn't say your quote, but (laughs) I hope we did a pretty good job, everybody, of making all your rainy days a little bit brainier today. Isn't that right, Paul? Yep, that's right. See you next time.